thanks so much for having me on here. Hello, Mitchell. Thanks for joining. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. It's nice, bright and early here on the West Coast. I just flew out to Vancouver yesterday. So it's lovely. I am watching the sun rise over a trailer park beside the Pacific Ocean, and I couldn't be happier to be here. That sounds fantastic. What time is it there? I think it's around 9 a.m.? Yeah, 9, no, 6 a.m. here in Vancouver right now. Oh, 6 a.m. That's quite early. In, in Spain, Europe, so it's 3 p.m., middle of the day for me. Well, no, we I'm having... happy to be operating <laughs> on the European time zones. Devotees will know that I'm a longtime supporter of European fine art NFTs and their community. So I am more than happy to cater to your time zone. <laughs> awesome. Mitchell, thanks so much again for joining. I'm, I'm very excited to, to chat with you about the different things. You have so many artworks related to NFTs, but also from before, because you have been making art since 2006. So that's uh, quite exciting. You have a long career. And we'll touch on the different pieces you have created, from sculptures to uh, generative art and the collection that's coming on Wild, which I'm super excited about, the Boys of Summer. But I would like to start, Mitchell, in the in that year, in 2006. Could you tell us a bit why and how and when did you decide to be an artist? Sure. When? You put it out there. That was 2006. I'm, I, I just finished my undergraduate degree in architecture school at Carleton University. The why is because I was not smart. <laughs> why become an artist? Because I was dumb. What a dumb idea. But I take ownership of it. I think that for a lot of people, maybe this might be true. I grew up in a small town in Ontario. And growing up there, you don't actually really get a lot of exposure to that kind of culture. There's no museum there. There's no, no art galleries there. And you'd have to wonder, why would I decide to be an artist when I really didn't even really know what art was as a profession? But there's some kind of calling to it that you like to create stuff, that you have the idea, the, this desire to express ideas that couldn't be expressed any other way. So you, you kind of jump into it. And that was the beginning of the journey. I was really lucky that the machine of the art world didn't just chew me up and spit me out right away. And I managed to kind of stick around long enough to figure some things out, to figure out what kind of art I liked and what kind of art I wanted to make, even though it took years and years. But that was sort of how it started. You had this calling to create. That's probably why people become artists in general. They want to express something. And Mitchell, early on, were you able to leave out of your art or did you have to work on different things? Did you have to do things or were you straight ahead full-time making art? Okay, so I'll tell you how it went down. All right, it wasn't actually right after I finished my undergraduate degree. I had a year after I finished my undergraduate degree because I knew that I wanted to be an artist. Like I said, I didn't know much about art. I didn't know much about how to be an artist. What I knew was that there was a very low success rate and that I probably wouldn't get much out of it financially early on. So I spent a year after I had an architecture degree. I spent a year working at the Passport 
uh, office. I, I worked at Passport Canada and Human Resources. And the reason I did that was because a good government job was the best paying job I could get. I could save up all my money. And so for a year, I saved up my money so that I could move to Toronto. Because I knew that if you wanted to be a professional artist in Canada, you didn't have a lot of options. You had to move to Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver. So that's what I did. And I set it up the entire time I was doing that. I was sending my portfolio to galleries and I was sending my portfolio to open group exhibitions and things like that. Really just like bottom rung of the ladder because I had no connections. I had no ins anywhere. Then when I finally got accepted into an exhibition, I said, okay, all right, that's it. It's time to go. So that was the day that I moved to Toronto. I moved to Toronto on the day before my work was, was going to be exhibited in an actual professional gallery for the first time ever in 2006, even though looking back, my work from that time wasn't that good, but it was good enough to make it into this one. And sure enough, at that opening, that painting sold. I'll never forget. It sold for $640, which wouldn't you know it, was going to be just enough for another month's rent and was going to be and just enough for another few magnums of cheap red wine to keep me going creatively during that time. And I would just kind of roll from, geez, I remember there was this one bar on Queen Street West in Toronto back in the good old days where all the artists used to hang out and everybody who was there was drinking. It was down to their last hundred bucks, it felt like. And spirits were always high. We used to call it our monthly miracle. The monthly miracle. Ah, something will happen. Something will happen. I'll make rent this month. And that's how it went down. And it wasn't always like that. Obviously, sometimes I did support that with teaching gigs or I had a job in an artist run center for a while. But that was, that was kind of how it went. That's interesting. I think every artist has to live through that, right? And have their own, like the friends that are kind of going through the same path. And that's part of the story. I guess that also shapes your art in a way. So how did you shape your artist? Some people call it the artist statement, but basically what is your art about? What is that that you're trying to express? How did you come up with that concept? And is it something that still changes? How is it for you? That's a great question. And it's something that I talk about with a lot of artists who are starting out. Oh, what's my art about? It's hard to craft an artist statement if your art isn't about anything. What's my art about? Well, I was really lucky because, like I said, I began in architecture. And studying architecture, I began to think of architecture a little bit differently. I thought that architecture is really the design of human interactions. Architecture is basically like you place a doorway somewhere and that's a bottleneck. You place a staircase somewhere and that's a place where people pass each other. Architecture is really this weird kind of performance sculpture where because you put a toilet in one room and a bed in one room, then people shit over here and sleep over there <laughs> only because of decisions that you've made. As I was studying architecture, I said, well, to be honest, this is really interesting, but doing it by figuring out bricks and structural loads is not interesting. I would rather try to figure out the ideas of architecture in a non-architectural space. So my early work was just sort of about that, just trying to eliminate everything that wasn't necessary to express architectural ideas. But I won't talk about it too much because like I said, that was a really young artist and, and that stuff wasn't very good. But eventually through that, I came to sort of interactive design. I started teaching myself robotics, physical computing, electronics. I would make art with sensors and interactive art like that. So now we're getting somewhere. You can kind of see how there's enough 
there's enough direction there to write out an artist statement, to be thinking about interaction, what it means to engage with a picture on a plane, on a wall, and what it means to engage with the wall itself. You sort of go on from there. And I say all that with the caveat that I didn't really figure out how to make good art or figure out what my voice was for about five years because I was able to teach myself some of that physical computing stuff on my own. I was able to parlay that into a full scholarship to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago where I was in their art and technology studies program. That's where I kind of figured it out. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. You entered this program, which was art and technology. That makes a lot of sense because when we look at the stuff you have created, especially the upcoming collection, The Voice of Summer, it's clearly there is a mix of tech and art. Some people like to go in, a, in succession, but I would like to start actually from your last collection, The Voice of Summer. And I'm very excited about that one, Mitchell, because I'm a big baseball fan. I'm a I'm a big stats guy. I love statistics, and that's why baseball stats is why I studied data science. That's one oh, of the really? reasons. Yeah, because I'm, I'm from Venezuela, so I'm in South America, but it's a national sport. It's baseball, and not many people know that, but I'm a big fan. Are you also a fan? I guess you are into baseball, right? Oh, yeah. I'm a sports fan in general. And I think like a lot of people, as I got older, I think I drifted away a little bit from that sport in particular. Because you get older, you get a family, and you, just, you don't have time for a three-hour baseball game anymore. <laughs> But I am a fan, and I have, I've been a bigger fan at points in my life. And so some of the research from this happened actually in a, a crappy summer job. When I was a student, when I was an architecture student one summer, I was a stat keeper at minor league baseball games in Ottawa, Canada. <laughs> oh, that's exciting. Yeah. When I was a kid, I used to watch games and track every everything that happened, what you were doing, basically. But some people find it extremely boring. For some reason, I like it. I think I, I watch more stats than games, actually. So... Yeah, exactly. Then, well, this is the thing. That's so interesting. Okay, first of all, I got to say yeah, something. Yeah. I'm so happy. I didn't realize you were from Venezuela. And yes, Venezuela <laughs> always does super well at the World Baseball Classic and all that stuff. Fantastic tradition of Venezuelan players. I'm really happy because one of the interesting things about this project is baseball is such a, it's not a European thing. And so actually when I've presented this project to Europeans, they're like, whoa, what's baseball? Yeah. I can see that, but from what I've seen, and maybe we should chat a bit about, about the artwork itself, mm -hmm. but it's like a decision-making. It's a game that you don't need to fully grasp baseball from no. what I've seen. So can you tell us a bit about the Voice of Summer? What is it about? How does this work slash artwork slash experience works? Sure. So let's divide this into three parts. All right. There's a PFP collection. There's a game, and then there's what happens when you put them together. For most people, they're going to start their experience with the PFP collection. These are PFPs that I made. They're like 3D modeled, 3D rendered in a sort of sketchy style uh, that will be familiar to anybody who played my previous game art piece, Winslow Homer's Croquet Challenge. They have many of the tropes of a PFP collection, and they're created with genuine affection, like a genuine love for the history of PFP collections, because I believe that 
that the PFP collection is like the only truly crypto native art form. Everything else, we're sort of revisiting other types of art that happened before. The PFP collection, because this all started with CryptoPunks, that is the, the one truly crypto invention in terms of artistic medium. So you have this PFP collection, but one thing that this PFP collection doesn't have is a lot of attribute data. And if you're looking at your PFP on the marketplace, you might notice that the only attribute data they have are their name, there might be Mitchell Chan, and a position, like say shortstop. If you are trying to sort the PFPs, like if you're trying to find rarity by who has funny glasses or who has goatees, you're not going to be able to do it. I don't keep any information about the aesthetics of the PFPs in the token metadata. Okay, so that's what you've got to start. That's part one, the PFP collection. Number two is the game. We're doing sort of all the promo blitz talking about this, that this is a baseball game, and we're going to see pretty quickly we get somewhere else. But you connect to this game, and this game is an NFT as well. It's a token that we're selling privately as a one-of-one. Just like my Winslow Homer's Croquet Challenge game is that it's a token that can even play an open sea window. You can connect your wallet and you can play with one of your characters, one of the PFPs that you own. The first thing that you do when you play uh, with your character is you choose a jersey number for the character. Then you choose some attribute points. They're rating and hitting and fielding and throwing and power. Then that decision begets some statistics. And it's just like you were saying that you would follow the statistics of baseball more than watch the games. Well, that's what you get to do. Those choices beget your batting average and your home runs and your RBI, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you keep playing, you keep making more decisions, you keep putting more numbers into things. You put numbers into a schedule to train your player, and then that begets more statistics. And then soon you have another window for advanced statistics. Your on-base plus slugging, your wins above replacement, your ultimate zone rating. But then pretty soon you have to make more decisions, and you're getting more statistics about things that don't involve baseball. You're getting a statistic like your SAT score, which will determine your college eligibility. Then pretty soon you're getting statistics about your social media followers. Imaginary social media followers, not your actual Twitter followers. You're getting statistics about your net worth, the interest rate on your loans, your credit card rate, and things like that. This game continues until I start off talking about it as being a baseball game. But the statistics and decisions start to leak out into the quote-unquote real world. Your screen becomes filled with all this data that you're generating about your character in real-life statistics. You leave the world of baseball pretty early. We realize it's not a game about baseball. It's a game about the statistics of life. That's kind of the second part. And finally, the third part is what was actually happening as you were playing the game is if you go back and you check your PFP on the marketplaces, you'll see that all that data, all those statistics were saved to your tokens metadata. And now that is the rarity and the rarity scores for your PFP. And on the marketplaces, you can search all of the characters now by, of course, their batting average or home runs or whatever, but also by their college grade point average, also by their gross annual income, also by biometric statistics, as esoteric as the, the amount of plaque that they have on their teeth. And all this data, of course, becomes market searchable. That kind of completes the thesis of taking us from, as you pointed out, baseball is a sport that lends itself to being expressed through statistics and consumed through statistics to the end point of this idea that our lives are a sport that increasingly lends itself 
to being consumed through statistics. That's super exciting, Mitchell. And I cannot wait to ask you, when did you get this idea? It is, was it something that slowly you started to add pieces into it? So how did you come up with this game, artwork game? Not sure how, how to call yeah, it. Yeah, man, I'm still trying to figure out what to call it. I think right now in the description, I'm calling it a transmedia art project. How did I get the idea? I don't know. Here's all I know. All I know is that I get like two good ideas per year and the rest of my brain power is just a complete waste of time. <laughs> um, but like it really happens. Look, my job as an artist is to just kind of have my eyes and ears open to the world around me and see what's going on. And you just figure out how to draw a line between those ideas. What I do is like I'm looking at the world around me. We live in a world of data and statistics and we live in a world where we want to be data and statistics. Like we want to wear Fitbits and record all of our sleep and our sleep app and record everything that we eat into our diet app. Major corporations want us to be statistics. They want to, they, they want to collect all of our data and package it and resell it. We hear that data is the new oil. And then I look at crypto and NFTs, which is obviously the space where I spend most of my time. I lament a lot of the time that it's impossible to communicate anything in this space without numbers behind it, or at least it feels that way. I'll have meetings with art collectors, and I'll try to tell them about my artwork and what the ideas are. The first thing they'll ask is, well, what's your floor? Yeah, right? This reduction... Right. You're right. This reduction of everything in numbers is a major point of stress in my life. Okay, so therefore, it's something I need to talk about. Then I always think, well, what is the best way to enter that subject? The best way to enter is baseball. I remember this from my life because it's just like you said. That's kind of some of the first experiences that we all have of engaging with another human being just as a set of numbers. We all do it. Ted Williams is 400. That's Ted Williams, okay? It's like Hank Aaron is like 720. You, you know what I mean, right? Right, yeah, totally. I understand what you mean. And you, there is something that it's very interesting for me, at least, that the players, they won't have access to the potential, to the intrinsic potential of their PFP or of their player until the end. As they play the game, correct me if I'm wrong, but... What I understood is that there is some hidden potential information behind each player. And as you play the game, you start to, to see how it goes. And at the end of the game, you can see this information. It's sort of the rarities that we see in the space in a way. Is that right, Mitchell? Yeah, that's pretty accurate. So these characters do have some hidden attributes. When I say hidden, they're not too, too hidden right? Anybody can find this stuff. I'll tell you right now, there's just another field in the PFP contract that points to a different URI that will tell you your character's inherent potential in areas of athletics, academics, and social interactions. But I want to make sure that that stuff doesn't appear on the marketplaces. You make your decisions, and obviously your outcome even of whether you make it as a professional baseball player are partially informed by your decisions, but also partially informed by some hidden attributes connected to the piece and connected to the PFP. And 
like I said, I didn't want to, it's only partially hidden because I always want to treat people fairly, let give people the opportunity to know exactly what they're getting. It's funny, this is a deep, I, I think this is a really deep project with a lot of different ideas in it that you can read a lot into, but it's never, ever tr going out of my way to be mysterious, to withhold anything from people so that they can be baffled or whatever. I try to take people along for the ride. A lot of the reasons for just making it a little bit more difficult to find those attributes, and the same thing with a little bit more difficult to sort by aesthetic traits, is just thinking about the early punk collector culture that people would make their own spreadsheets to find weird attributes that weren't ever listed in metadata that was really cool and fun for people so it's just a little bit the data is a little bit off the beaten path yeah that's how you managed to make this game also a collectible what could have been the better way than looking at the original crypto punks how it transpired and how it evolved over time that's really exciting. Also, I think it's a great, not only for art, but it's another way to show the potential of the NFT technology. And I'm sure you also thought about that because it perfectly could be a game run by NFTs. And then the characters in the game are NFTs. Exactly as you are, are doing it, maybe it could include not necessarily baseball, but there are many avenues where this could be taken in the future, not necessarily for art. And my next question is related to that. Have you thought uh, in the future, Mitchell, what do you think could happen in this medium, in the blockchain? And do you feel there will be more things happening, like taking advantage of NFTs, using them in, in different ways that we haven't seen yet, similar to what you're doing with this project? Yeah, almost certainly there's going to be there's going to be stuff that we haven't seen before. There are enough really smart creators in this space who are constantly innovating and developing new mechanics and new modes of expression that we're going to see new exciting stuff. No doubt about it. What that will be exactly, uh, I don't really know. But I can speak more about what I think is the future of digital art more broadly. And I do think it looks a lot more like this. Now, Boys of Summer is unique in that I think that it's one of the very few projects we see in this space that needs to be an NFT to work. It's okay that not all art is like that. It's okay that sometimes we just make digital art and we use the NFT to sell it and commodify it. That's totally fair. I'm super happy for artists who do that. But this piece is so much about NFT collector culture and NFT markets. It only works that final step of the project, phase three, where it becomes a market performance. It only works because it's an NFT. You make that metadata, the metadata gets saved, attached to the token, and then the market just boom, automatically reads it. And that's the performance. So that is, is super NFT specific it's because I spend a lot of time thinking about this space um, and how it works on a social and, and technical level. But d digital art in general, here's what I'll say. Like this is phase two of the project, the game is this interactive artwork. And we're just gonna see more of that. In the last three years in this NFT digital art boom, we did it. We busted down the doors and 
people are accepting that the screen of their laptop, their computer monitor, or even their phone, all right, that is a place, that is a valid place where we experience fine art, okay? It's not just happening on the wall of our living room above our couch. It's not just happening on the wall of the museum. That's great. Now that the screen is a site for important art, and it's okay to say that, there's just no way that we're going to keep on making just static images and being like, oh, cool, here's another JPEG on my phone, right? When you can do so much with the screen, you can create these immersive experiences, you can create these interactive experiences. As an artist, that's awesome to do. So I really believe in that. I'm really, we're launching this project on the platform Wild XYZ because they're big time leaders also in experiential and immersive art. They're all in on that as well. I think that the art world is going to be all in on that as well. Right, yeah. A few weeks ago, I had the chance to interview Douglas, who is the founder of Wild. And he kind of opened my eyes in terms of what's possible and that they are really focused on that, what you described, like all the things that are now available, all these experiences, the experiential art. I think as, as technology evolves, when you look at the Apple, I, I always forget the name of the device, the new VRs. <laughs> Vision Pro! The, yeah, that one, yeah. With that one and the upcoming devices that will have much, so much potential, you can disguise the limit, right, for artists. In terms of what Wild is doing, it's very exciting to see the diversity of artists and projects that they are putting together. I think it's really pushing the boundaries into what's possible in, in that regard. Before we move on, Mitchell, to the other artworks that you have created, just curious, how long have you been working in this collection? Because it's not easy uh, in terms of all the logic that you had to put there, all these decision trees, all these options, as you described. How long did it take to code all this game? A long time, but that's okay because I have a lot of time and I set myself up in a realistic way. So Winslow Homer's Croquet Challenge came out in December of 2022 and I've been working on it literally since even before that came out, working on just this piece. That will mean this is 10 months of solo work, but then it's when I knew that games were going to be my format for the foreseeable future. I immediately started building out some expertise and some tools that I could reuse. It was like after my Art Blocks project, that's when I started making a game demo. I would spend like four months doing that just to teach myself the, the game engine shaders, how to move unities. It was, there was like two years of teaching myself game development and then like 10 months of doing just this, Boys of Summer. And the way that I set up my studio, too, it takes a long time. This game, it's not like EA Sports MLB The Show. It's an artwork, but it's all me. I made a conscious decision that I did not want to hire assistants. I made a conscious decision that I did not want to have a studio, that I wanted to do everything myself. That's what it is, and that takes a little bit longer. But you're getting, you're getting handmade bits and handmade pixels. Nice. Yeah, and not only shaders, right? Like when I was in university, I had to code one of these kind of simulation games. Similar, it wasn't graphical. It was mostly like the logic. And it's not easy to come up with these decision trees that actually make sense that it's not super complex, but at the same time, 
not super easy, like uh, very simple decisions. So yeah, it, there is a lot of, I, know, I can see that there is a lot of work into the project and that's really exciting. Mitchell, we jump from your early days, 2006, <laughs> and now we came to the Boys of Summer, but I would like to go back now to 2017. Mm-hmm. You created the digital sounds of immaterial pictorial sensibility. Can you tell us a bit about that and, and, and how did you come up that time with that concept? Well, it's exactly what I was describing before. As an artist, your job is to kind of have your eyes and ears open to the world and figure out what's going on. But if you're an artist who deals with technology, as I am and as I was at that time, finally starting to get good at it, you're looking at technology that's shaping the world and figuring out what does this mean for society. So in 2017, Bitcoin exists and now Ethereum exists. And you're wondering, okay, like this is interesting. What does it mean that we as a society, a decent number of people in the society have decided that these Bitcoins will be worth something, that these Ethers will be worth something, that they could have a currency, a financial system that is not linked to any referent in the real world, certainly not any physical commodity and not even any centralized government, that it's a distributed promise is essentially what Bitcoin is. That was the perfect time to do it because Ethereum had been around long enough. And with Ethereum, the technology becomes not just a subject that we can that we can make art about, but with Ethereum and the EVM and Solidity, Ethereum is now also a medium that we can make art with. This is really exciting. Okay, if I can write code for this blockchain, that means that I can make art on this blockchain. That was really my sweet spot as an art and tech artist at that time, was wanting the medium of the artwork to line up with the subject of the artwork. Thing about blockchain as a subject I kind of just said it. I I start to realize, well, the value of a cryptocurrency is nothing but like a decentralized promise. Enough people believe in it that it just becomes fact. And this was a strange notion for a lot of people to understand back then. I think more people are starting to understand the value proposition of crypto now, six years later. But it was really easy to understand if you were, were a conceptual artist. Conceptual art has been doing this for a long time, taking faith and and promise and like intangible belief and distilling it into some sort of commodity. So that was the statement that I wanted to make. I had to write a long essay that would show people that I knew what I was talking about. And I had to make this proof of concept token. That token was the digital zone of immaterial pictorial sensibility. It was inspired by a conceptual art project from 1958 by the French artist Yves Klein. And I took that project, I translated it into Solidity. And that ended up being one of the first non-fungible tokens that was created. And it's certainly one of the earliest tokenized fine art pieces that anyone can buy on the blockchain. And it's been a heck of a ride since then. Right. And I was listening to one of your interviews with our blogs, when you presented the Lewitt Generator Generator, that we will talk about it in a bit, but I remember you were saying that when you released that token, that proof of concept in 2017, nobody noticed. There wasn't an audience back then. But then over time, 
as collectors and NFTs became popular and collectors started to search the blockchain and look back, they found it. And I was wondering, how did it, did that felt? Like you woke up one day and then suddenly there were a lot of people collecting this piece. How did that happen? I'm really proud of that and really happy with that because it happened really organically and waiting for that kind of recognition as long as I did, I think really helped me find my people. Yeah. The fact that it was organic and not a huge point in my career. So basically, here's what I learned from that. In 2017, there are a number of reasons why this happened, but I presented that project in an art gallery at Interaxis Electronic Media Arts Center in Toronto. I'm thinking at that time that the audience for this artwork is an art world audience and that this is a really interesting way to present the idea and concepts of crypto and blockchain to them. But for a variety, I presented it again at Kent State University in Ohio, but for a variety of reasons, it just didn't pick up. I didn't really get any traction there. Maybe it was because blockchain technology wasn't the like mainstream consciousness phenomenon that it is now, but whatever. But then in 2020, I discover that instead of this project talking to art audiences about crypto, this project is starting to talk to crypto audiences about art. I discover that crypto audiences at that time, especially pretty early, they're there because they're curious people. They're there because they went down rabbit holes and read esoteric white papers. And so they have a lot of patience for this kind of stuff and uh, are really open to connecting with these new ideas. That was really nice. And because people just found it, I was able to make these real connections with people who were actually searching for stuff and actually connecting with the idea and not even really looking for financial gain because it was still sort of in a lot of cases early enough that there was no suggestion that there was going to be any. I remember I had this great conversation with a collector who's now a good friend of mine. We, we had this DM thread going back and forth. He's like, yeah, I'm going to get one of these. How long do you think it'll go? And I said, well, I don't know. People are even now going to want to collect all these. Like, well, maybe the project's more interesting if it never mints out. And I'm like, yeah, maybe you're right. Yeah, that that's interesting. I, I can imagine all the people you have met and chat with, like all these collectors. And... No, I mentioned already the Lewitt Generator Generator, and I'm a big fan of generative art. Mitchell, a big follower of FXH and Artblocks. And you released a project on Artblocks, and it was kind of the, an early one. It was in 2021, I think during summer. I was just wondering, in general, how was the experience to create this collection that is code on the blockchain? For you as an artist, that you are a conceptual artist and, and the medium is so important, how did that process felt and, and what is that collection about? That was a really interesting artwork, especially happening when it did, right, summer of 2021. But I'll tell you, the origins of that artwork date back ooh, maybe six, seven years before that. Um, in 2013, I think, I made this project. It's called like my original Lewitt generator. And it was just processing code. But, you know, obviously there were no NFTs then or whatever. It was for exhibition. This thing was exhibited. Where was it exhibited? It was exhibited at Angel Gallery in Toronto, then later at Humber Galleries. I just had this processing sketch that was doing a, a very like similar thing to what the NFT does. 
to what my Artblocks project does. And it was running on one of those beautiful old Snowball iMacs, the ones that were like a half white dome with that beautiful chrome flexible gooseneck that came out. And that would sit on an Ikea table in the gallery, uh, running that code, generating a new Solowit drawing every 30 seconds or something like that. Beside that, there would be these uh, instruction manuals that contained the code. And the instruction manuals were formatted to be like Ikea instructions. They used the Ikea font and the Ikea logo and everything like that. Then on the wall, there were printouts and the printouts were for sale. I was doing that because I was seeing this tension between how we're trying to commodify and package information. And to be more explicit about it, here was the tension. It was in the 1960s, conceptual artists had this wild idea that art was just ideas. Art's just ideas. The physical representation of the thing, the manifestation of the thing is less important. So we are going to say that just the idea is our artwork. And then, of course, very quickly, as artists do, they fall into this trap of, I don't want to call it a trap. They just have to enter the real world of, well, but you need to make money. You need to commodify or sell things. But they do this revolutionary thing, which is that they just sell their idea. And Saluit is probably the most easily digestible example of this phenomenon, where each Solowit artwork, if you go see it at a museum, if you go see it at Mass Mocha, it's this massive, massive drawing on the wall. But what he was selling was not that. He sells just a set of instructions and a signed certificate of authenticity. And then you go ahead and follow the instructions and assemble it yourself. And that's fine. The idea is the thing that has value in the artistic sense and in the financial sense. Okay, so that's the 1960s. That's the revolutionary idea. I'm making the original LeWitt generator right at the height of the internet era. There's a slogan going around at that time that information wants to be free. We're just kind of recovering from Napster and file sharing and all of this stuff. It's like, this is a big problem. This would be a big problem for conceptual artists who wanted their information to be the thing that they charged money for. There's a real tension there, you know what I'm saying? And so I make this piece to say, well, this is not going to work now that it's the internet and this stuff and this stuff is all software. We're back to having to give away the information for free and you can buy these printouts. You can buy these signed printouts and the information is free era. All we can do is sell merch. If you're a band, unfortunately, your songs are free. They're free on Napster or now they're essentially free on file streaming. All you can sell is T-shirts and merch, right? And so that's what that project was about. And then when art blocks came around and NFTs came around, here's this fascinating flip of that model once again. And now all of a sudden this information, this code, you're putting it on chain and you're generating this unique seed and that's the value. And that now that information has value. And the image itself, the merch, it's right-click savable. That's free. So it was a way of saying that blockchain maybe I still haven't totally figured this out, but maybe it returns to the conceptualist's model of where financial value is. And that's my long-winded way of explaining that project. No, that's a very good one. I didn't realize it was so deep, but that's a very interesting, Mitchell. And for everybody in the audience, if, you, if you're wondering where you can see all these artworks from Mitchell, I'll share the recording through my newsletter and all the podcasting platforms. 
and all the artworks will be linked there. So don't worry if you cannot find them right now. I'll make sure they are in the description. By the way, just an update. Every Monday, I'm doing these Twitter spaces between 3 p.m., 7 p.m. UTC. And then if you cannot make it live, I'm sharing it on my newsletter and also in the different podcasting platforms. Usually, I have amazing guests like Mitchell here related to art, related to generative art, AI art, but also builders and creators in the space. Mitchell, I would like to move on. You have done more recently a lot of digital artwork, but in the past, you also created a lot of sculptures and installations. And I was wondering, as a creator, as an artist, what are the challenges when you think of creating physical works and digital works? What are the challenges of, the, of both mediums? The biggest challenge is when you're creating physical installations and public artworks, drunk college kids are your enemy. When you're creating digital immersive works, drunk college kids are your friends. <laughs> like, look, I love my time making physical installations. And so for background, before NFTs made it viable to make a living creating digital artwork, I, I made most of my money making public artworks, like massive sculptures that would go in parks and plazas, like things that are just the opposite of NFTs. Like these are things that would be one ton of steel and aluminum, and these things were not portable. They were certainly not liquid. They would never be resold. They would never move from where uh, they were. Also in galleries, I would make installation pieces that would take up an entire room. And so to sort of paint an audio picture for your listeners, one of my pieces, it was just a room full of like velvet ropes on stanchions, but all the velvet ropes were on robotic arms that moved up and down. So all the velvet ropes became like this choppy ocean. It became like an ocean of velvet ropes moving up and down like waves. The hassles of that are that, honestly, number one, money. It's extremely expensive to make those projects. And where money becomes involved, then so does control. You're often making those projects as commissions for clients. And clients understandably want to have some say in what is happening because they're signing a check for a quarter million dollars or more or whatever it is. But that's fine. It was just like, to bring it back to the beginning of our story, where I was saying that oh, I left architecture to become an artist because I just wanted to explore those ideas without all of the hassle of dealing with those logistics. These game art pieces are like that again, because like with NFTs, all of my experience in installation and public art comes to bear. It was all preparation for making these kinds of pieces because through that, I think about how people engage with objects all right. I think about how people interact with things. I think about how people are going to try to break things. I, and I just I think about designing the whole experience, like not just one window on a wall. Right. And with the digital artworks, they're just the extension of that. Like this game, if it relates to any of my other artwork and medium, it's definitely to 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 installation and public art. Right. Because with the installations, as you said, you have to prepare all the logistics, the material, you have to order it and the shipping and all this complicated stuff that takes months. Besides getting the space, right, and getting the public space where it will be shown. I can imagine you learned a lot from those experiences and then 
you were able to sort of bring that to the the digital medium where it's not necessarily like raw materials, but when you think about the the voice of summer, there are many faces and there are many pieces into that game artwork. And it's not only, as you said, like you put it on a wall. No, it's about the beginning, the middle part, and then the end. How does the game end? So that's really interesting, Mitchell. And do you see yourself going back to the physical realm or you are not going back at all? Oh, I imagine at some point I will. Right now, I'm really focused on games right now. But every now and then I see my studio calling me. I have such a collection of soldering irons and, and milling bits that I'll do something like that eventually. But for right now and for the foreseeable future, game art is what excites me. It's just I can do all of the best parts of what I was doing with that physical stuff. And like to add one more thing to that connection, the biggest thing that I learned from public art It's different. It's not like art that you make to go right into a gallery or a museum where the only people who are going to see it are people who paid 15 bucks for a ticket to the museum to deal with some smarty pants. When you make public art that goes in a park, you have to speak to everyone and you can still say really smart things and you can still say really deep things, but you need to have at least a superficial level that engages with everyone. And that I think was the ultimate preparation for me making this NFT art and having the career that I'm fortunate enough to have. It's like with Boys of Summer, we talked a lot about the ideas in there and I think that they're relevant and I think that they're layered and I'm really proud of that. But if there's only, if there's only one thing that people come away with, if they're going to miss all that, right, I think they can come away with the feeling that it's fun, that it's fun and it respects them. And that is really important to me, to be able to wrap everything up in that sensation. And that is what I learned from making public art. That is what is in my digital art now. Right, that's fun. It's a good line. It makes perfect sense when you think about making games. And that's exciting. You're planning on creating more games in the future. Any, any ideas? Are you like thinking of more like simulations similar to The Boys of Summer? Or do you have something completely different in mind? What are your thoughts in, into, into those games you're thinking of? Well, I should probably take it one step at a time. But I can say this, which is that the next one will be much smaller than Boys of Summer. Because Boys of Summer was way too big of a project. And it would be really dumb for me to try to do something as big as Boys of Summer again. I think that whatever it is next time will be a little bit smaller, just so that I can preserve my sanity and have a nice long career in this space. But no, they're always if there's one thread that's run through my work in the past eight years or whatever... It's that they're all different. It's like I go back to the drawing board every single time because there's just new ideas out there that excite me. So this is definitely a, a, a unique thing. Definitely a unique thing. The next games, I think, I really like the sports theme that's running through my artwork because I think sports is such a great metaphor for a lot of systems in our world, but it'll be different. Right. Mitchell, we are getting close to the hour. I really would like to know who are 
your inspirations in the digital art space? Which are the artists that inspire you and that you enjoy their art? I know it's a tricky, it's a hard question, but yeah, would you sure. very in curious the, about that. In the digital art space? Yeah, in the digital art space, could be NFT related or not. Just general artists that... Sure. So I tell you what, there's a lot that people have heard about and, and heard me talk about, but I'll try to do some deep cuts here for you. For the ones that you probably heard about, honestly, man, you can... This is easy and relevant. You look at the wild curatorial board, a lot of them a lot of them are, are, are on there. Uh, they're good friends and people who have inspired me. So that's a great one. And then obviously, I take a lot of inspiration in the NFT world from the people who are here here really early and did a lot of thinking and thought leadership in this space early, like, you know, like Rhea Myers and Kevin McCoy and people like that. But to give you a deep cut, and I'll tell you something I was thinking about the other day. The other day I was sitting out here looking out at the water and I was just thinking, I was just remembering one that people probably don't know. Look up the piece One Token by Sam Hart. One Token by Sam Hart is probably as good a conceptual crypto art project as anyone has ever made. And not a lot of people know about it because it's not for sale. It's not able to be bought and therefore it doesn't get a lot of attention. But that piece was way, way back when he did this. I don't know when it was because it's like an ERC-20. I don't know if he might have done it 2016, might have done it 2018. I'm not sure. But the idea is he made a cryptocurrency with a supply of one. A supply of one indivisible token. And because it's a cryptocurrency of, with a supply of one indivisible token, it can have both like infinite market cap and infinite value, but also zero value. It, it lacks the ability to be a vehicle for trade. It cannot be a medium for trade. It's just a really fantastic little conceptual crypto art project. That would be my NFT crypto art deep cut. I just quickly search it and it's from... November 2017. So not so far away from your own token, right? When you were exhibiting your pictorial um, yeah. early, early token. <laughs> yeah, we were ships passing in the night then. Yeah, that's right. Well, Mitchell, I think we came to the end. This was really enlightening. I had a lot of fun. I learned a lot from your experience and your career and I'm very excited for Boys of Summer. I'll be playing the game. I hope I get a character with a lot of power. We'll see how that goes. Thanks a lot for being here, Mitchell. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I really appreciated all your questions and research. It was a delight. Have a great day and talk to you soon. You too.